Please turn with me to Isaiah chapter 43. We'll be reading verses 1 through 13. This is the word of God. But now thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, and you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you, because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east, and from the west I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar, and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Bring out the people who are blind yet have eyes, who are deaf yet have ears. All the nations gather together, all the peoples assemble. Who among them can declare this and show us the former things? Let them bring their witnesses to prove them right, and let them hear and say, it is true. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be after me. I, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you. And you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, I am God. Also, henceforth, I am he, there is none who can deliver from my hand. I work, and who can turn it back? Here ends the reading of God's word. Good morning. Happy New Year. And before we enter into our study this morning in Revelation 10, I ask that you please bow with me before our Lord that he might enlighten our eyes to see what he has for us this morning. Our Holy Father, we come to you in the name of our Savior Jesus Christ. We enter in to corporate worship, acknowledging your presence among us, acknowledging your power and sovereignty over us. Ever mindful and thankful, I pray, for the redeeming work provided on our behalf through your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, grant us this morning, we pray, an attentiveness to your word. Grant us the grace, grant us the mercy to see the glorious truth before us and what it means with regard to your promises of old, that all the mysteries of you, our mighty Lord, through your Lamb, will one day be fully made manifest. Lord, I pray for those that come in this morning, frail and weak spiritually, that you'll lift them up, that you'll gird them up, that you'll strengthen them. Those who come in hopeless, full of despair, that you'd renew in them, Lord, a new sense of hope. For those that suffer physically, any ailment or disease, we ask for your healing hand according to your perfect sovereign will. Strength to endure. A mindset, Lord, may we all have that is affixed on your eternal purposes. Remembering the power of the cross, the purpose of the cross, uh, and the future that we have because of the cross. The hope of glory. Bless your people now, and I ask, Holy Spirit, that you would please impart to me grace enabling me to communicate your divine truth to your people, build them up in the faith, that we might see you more vividly. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, very happy new year to you all. 
Um, If you're visiting with us here this morning, we are very thankful to have you with us. Uh, We're looking this morning at Revelation chapter 10, the entire chapter. So if you would, open your Bibles to the glorious revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. I'll begin reading in verse 1. The Word of God reads, Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud, with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea, and his left foot on the land, and called out with a loud voice, like a lion roaring. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said, and do not write it down. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay. But that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who's standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. He said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. This ends the reading of God's word. And may he impress upon our hearts and minds as his people the truth that's being conveyed here this morning. In the book of Genesis, chapter 8, verse 22, after the worldwide flood, God promised that while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. In other words, new year after new year will pass as long as this earth remains as it is. Now, countless people gathered this week to celebrate the promise of Genesis 8, whether they realize it or not. I was out with my family eating dinner on New Year's Eve late at night, and I said, you know what everyone's celebrating? Genesis 8.22. That's exactly what's being celebrated, yet, for the most part, in ignorance. As a matter of fact, many people purposefully became inebriated two nights ago to welcome in yet another year while the earth remains as it does in time and in space. But as Christians, beloved, we know that time itself will end. Past, present, and future concepts will one day be unnecessary for us. That is our hopeful anticipation. Eternity itself, which is a byproduct of God himself, is all that we will know. Time and space will be swallowed up by a new heaven and a new earth. And in verse 7, right here in the Revelation, we are promised that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God will be fulfilled just as the Lord has announced to his servants and prophets from throughout time. There is coming a day when all of the foretelling and purposes of God will pass and they all will be fulfilled to the utter end. Now, the same thing is true in our old lives, beloved. I mean, 
God works in us, God works through us, God works around us, and sometimes it can be a great mystery to us. We do not know why things happen to us and around us as they do, but one day those mysteries will be revealed. After all, the Lord Jesus Christ said to his own disciples the night before he went to the cross, he said, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. My father called me just this week. He informed me that my aunt and uncle came into town who are 78 and 80 years old to bury my cousin who's 57. And then they have to turn around and go back south on the east coast to bury their daughter who will die in just a number of days. They sit as Christians in faith knowing that God is sovereign but yet not understanding this mystery at this time. But one day, the meaning, the mysteries, and the purposes of God will be made plain to us. Yet until then, we persevere by faith. In John now, in this portion of the glorious revelation of Jesus Christ, is writing from the vantage point when all of God's promises, beloved, will come to pass and the ultimate vindication of his people will come by way of a new heaven and a new earth when the last trumpet sounds. That's what he is encouraging a church that is under heavy persecution at this time. Remember, the revelation was not written to us. It was written for us. It was written to the seven churches of Asia Minor who were under heavy trial, temptation, and persecution. So just as this truth uh, assures them of their future hope, we can therefore apply it to our lives as well. John says, as this vision is being passed before him, he says in chapter 1, verse 9, I, John, am your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom. Two simultaneous experiences that I'm going through with you. I am part of the kingdom with you. I am part of the tribulation with you. And I'm part of the patient endurance that is in Christ Jesus. We endure. Now, a little review before we get into the text that's before us. Um, As you've witnessed over the months, the basic structure of the book of Revelation is expressed through recapitulation and progressive parallelism. That is to say that the book of Revelation is constantly covering the same ground over and over again, all the while providing for us further insight into God's divine plan from different angles. Get it? That's what this is. Now, the book of Revelation is comprised mostly of three sevenfold judgments. Seven seal judgments, seven trumpet judgments, and seven bowl judgments. Now, when we are in the seven seal judgments, we saw those first six seals open. This is a rolled up scroll, that's the picture, that's the imagery, a rolled up scroll sealed seven Times And there was no one worthy to open that scroll but one. And that is the Lamb of God who was slain before the foundation of the earth. That is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ, the only one who can open it. And he began to open up one seal at a time. And those six seals was a vision of God's poured out judgment, providential judgment, temporal judgment that would occur between the first and second comings of the Lord Jesus Christ upon what is referred to as the inhabitants of the earth. Now, that's John's term for people who are defiant against Jesus Christ and his gospel. That's what inhabitants of the earth are. You say, well, we're inhabitants of the earth. No, not in this context, you're not. You're a redeemed people of God. Sealed, protected. So the sixth seal provided us with, with a depiction of final judgment. Remember, this is a vision John is receiving. And in that sixth seal judgment is a picture that final judgment's going to come. And at that time, John hears a sound. 
and it's the inhabitants of the earth crying out, the great day of the wrath has come, and who they ask can possibly stand. Then in chapter 7, John postpones the opening of the seventh seal to break away from those that are being judged and those who are under the judgment of God to pull the camera back and away and focus on the people of God. So when we're in chapter 7, we entered in what's called a literary interlude, a break in the action, if you will. The camera pulls back, and it focuses on the victorious people of God who are, who are none other than the church of Jesus Christ, the bride of Christ. And we see two different vantage points of those same people. In chapter 7, they're described as 144,000 Israelites. In other words, the complete Israel of God, i.e., the one true church of Jesus Christ. So he hears the sound. It's 144,000 saints. That's what he hears. But then the vision changes and it moves from earth to heaven where the sound that he heard of 144,000 appears to be an innumerable group of people from every tribe, every tongue, and every language. The church of Jesus Christ. And then the seventh seal was opened And the seventh seal revealed for us seven trumpet judgments. That's what the seventh seal is. The revealing of seven trumpets. Trumpets that would be blown. Which reveal, again, recapitulation of the judgments of the Lord Jesus Christ. Temporal judgments upon those who are the enemies of Christ who dwell upon the earth. That are not protected. That are not saved. Who do not love the Lord Jesus Christ but are enemies of his gospel. And we saw that those judgments affect the earth, they affect the sea, they affect the rivers. We see that one of those judgments was the unleashing from the pit, um, demonic beings, right? Non-corporeal, in other words, invisible, to attack and afflict those who are not sealed by the Lord Jesus Christ. And through it all, beloved, we see imagery related to warfare, related to enmity and judgment. And as you know, in true, real military battle, friendly fire is not uncommon. In any given war, men go to battle and they're accidentally shot by their own comrades. It happens. So hearing then this revelation of Jesus Christ, place yourself in the sandals of the first century church who didn't have the convenience of having their own personal scroll to sit in front of their fireplace in their rocking chair to read the word of God. It was read openly and it was read publicly to them as they gathered together. Therefore, the revelation said, blessed is he who reads and those who hear the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. So as they hear this, what are they hearing? This what seems to be a perpetual, ongoing, periodic judgment of God upon the inhabitants of the earth. So they must wonder, will we not be recipients of friendly fire, perhaps? How is it possible that we can endure this and not be overtaken by the end judgment of God, the final wrath of the Lamb? Well, we've heard six trumpets sound. Now, we would normally expect to hear the seventh trumpet blast at this point. And here in chapter 10, as well as chapter 11, there's another interlude, another break in the action, just like back in chapter 7. Right in between the last two trumpets. So this now, beloved, is an interlude of encouragement for all those who are in Christ, from the first century church under persecution here to you this very moment, the universal church of Jesus Christ throughout time. This is like a television network breaking into the middle of your favorite program, just as the mystery is about to be revealed, right? The murder case is being solved, and now here comes this voice. We now interrupt this regularly scheduled program to bring you the special news bulletin. There's a break in the action. 
Now, that could be frustrating for us because we want to know the mystery. We want to know the end. So here now, the Lord provides another interlude, another break, more delay. So why is it, beloved? Why is it there's such a long delay in God's final trumpet blast, which will bring forth final ultimate judgment? Well, as Christians, we know that it's in order to bring his elect to saving faith. For the scriptures tell us that his elect, he desires that none of them perish, but all would come to repentant faith. That's why. That's why we are still in this period of delay. Now, the persecuted church at this time is likely to ask, will this trumpet ever blast? Will this thing ever sound? Will God, your people, be ultimately vindicated? In other words, glorified. Will this new heaven and this new earth ever come? Or is every time we get to this new judgment, it's just another series of providential temporal judgments upon the inhabitants of the earth? Is this all? Well, that, beloved, is what we're going to look at together this morning. Will this really end? Will the final end come? And I want you to notice three points of observation for us outlined for in your bulletin. Number one, we see a great vision of power in verses one through three. Secondly, we see a voice of promise in verses four to seven. And then finally, we will look at the vocation of prophecy in verses eight to 11. Notice first the vision of power, verses one through three. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head and his face was like the sun, his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand. He set his right foot on the sea, his left foot on the land, called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded. So notice what he sees here. First of all, a mighty angel descending out of heaven, cloaked in a cloud. Clothed in a cloud. Now, if you look at this imagery, it it certainly reflects the imagery of Daniel 7, which we looked at numerous times in our study of the Revelation, where we see the Son of Man who comes with the clouds or on the clouds to receive authority from the Ancient of Days. When you read Ancient of Days in the Old Testament, that is referring to none other than God the Father. Also, there's a description here of a rainbow. What does that remind us of? It it, it reminds us, uh, according to Ezekiel, that the glory of heaven is like multicolored. Again, this is all imagery. When Jesus is described for us in chapter 1, that's not what, what, what Jesus looks like but rather is what he's like. And there's only so many words in the human language that can begin to define, to define the greatness and the power and the majesty and the holiness of the Lord Jesus Christ. So here too now, we see this angel descending who reflects the very glory of God himself. Now, some see this as Jesus because of the description provided. I don't think it's Jesus. If you look back at John 5, uh, we saw that there was another strong angel as well. And eventually that mighty angel would point to the one who was worthy to open the seven-sealed scroll. Again, the angel's job was to point to Jesus. When we gather here, do we come to, to, to seek the Holy Spirit? No, you come here to hear the words of Christ preached. The the role and purpose of God the Holy Spirit is to point you to Jesus, not himself. That's his job. That's his role. For the glory of the Father. So it says another strong angel have coming down from heaven. This word here is another of the same kind. Another of the same kind. A created being. And there's something we must remember here. In first century Christendom, don't forget that this first century church was surrounded by Greek culture. 
so this, a picture of a mighty angel who's actually submitted to the one and only true sovereign God, is described in such a way that exceeds the power and features of any God, small g, of Greek mythology. Puts him to shame. It's a depiction of an angel that simply reflects the glory of God. He descends and he has a little scroll, notice, open in his hand. Now, as we read of the term scroll and little scroll in this very chapter, uh, those are both interchangeable terms. There's no reason for us to interpret this. Scroll is any other scroll than that which Christ has begun to rip open. That's the scroll. And it's now pictured as being opened and little. First of all, because I believe it's in the hand of this mighty angel. And second of all, that scroll, John is going to be instructed to take and what? And to eat. Again, this is imagery. It's going to be passed on to John. Here, what do we see? A continuation of a chain of transmission. What do I mean by that? Well, the beginning chapter of Revelation, we see the chain of transmission of the Revelation itself. It comes from the Father to Jesus the Son, revealed through his angel, given to John to be declared to the church. Glorious chain of transmission. So here now is this angel with that scroll in his hand. He now sets his right foot on the sea, his left foot on the land. This is also symbolic. And it's mentioned in verse 2, it's mentioned in verse 5, it's mentioned in verse 8. It's very important. A lot of people, when they read Zechariah, they think that when Jesus comes back, he's literally going to have his literal right foot on the Mount of Olives splitting the Kidron Valley. That's figurative, beloved. This is figurative. And in biblical language, to place one's foot on something is to declare sovereignty over that thing. Here a messenger of Christ comes. One foot on land, one foot on sea, declaring for us that the one who sent him is sovereign over land and sea. He's sovereign over heaven and earth, beloved. He's the only sovereign. He spoke it into existence. He rules it all. This is his kingdom. He's the king. So there then we have this vision of power. And we move into now this voice of promise. Notice in verses 4 through 7. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write. I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said. Do not write it down. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him. Notice this. Who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it that there would be no more delay, but that in the days of the trumpet, the days of that trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants, to his prophets of old. That's what he hears. Now, I must admit that that this makes me wonder. I mean, in, in a book entitled Apocalypsis, Revelation, Unveiling, Tearing Back, Nothing to be Hidden, why here is the Lord so reserved to convey what those seven thunders sounded? Well, it doesn't say. And your prophecy experts of the day would do themselves well to adhere to this. It doesn't say. But we'll see what it conveys, which is quite clear. It's not some of, what, some of this comic book eschatology defines it as being, I'll tell you that. But this is a very significant event. So John hears this utterance from heaven, he dips his pen, he begins to write out what he hears, and all of a sudden he's instructed, stop, do not write it down. Seal up, he said, what the seven thunders have said, do not write it down. Now, if things are no longer to be sealed up as they were in Daniel's day, remember Daniel was given a magnificent vision, which is very similar to the Revelation, but he was told to seal up the vision. Why? Because the time was far off. The coming of the Son of Man was in the far future. Therefore, because it's so far off, seal it up until the last day. 
This is now the last day. This is the last day. In 1 John, it says, now is the last day. It was the last day then, it's the last day now, so why is it concealed? This is much like the Olivet Discourse, beloved. When Jesus stood and he looked at the temple because his disciples were asking him, uh, what will be the signs of the end of the age? What about this beautiful temple? What about all the buildings surrounding the temple? And Jesus answers, I assure you, there will be wars, there will be rumors of wars, there will be earthquakes, there will be famines, but these things will only be the beginning of birth pains. Only the beginning. So think about it, as the disciples themselves were there, no doubt, ready to write down, not literally, but in their minds, that which would bring forth the signs of this, Jesus said, these are not signs of the end. These are things that characterize life in this age, the age between my first and second coming. Even the judgment, don't miss this, even the judgment that brought forth the end of the age of Judaism. Destruction of the temple, destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD was to prefigure God's final judgment upon this earth. It's just a picture. As gruesome as it was, and as mighty as the wrath of the Lamb came upon Jerusalem and the temple, it was only a prefigurement of final judgment, while at the same time, it also signified a delay to that final judgment. Are you with me, beloved? So during this period characterized by the seal and the trumpet judgments upon an unbelieving earth, there's this period of delay where God's final ultimate judgment is restrained. It's postponed. So then, here this angel swears an oath. He raises his right hand to heaven. His right foot is on the land. His left foot is on the sea. And he says, verse 7, but that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled just as announced to his servants and prophets. In other words, beloved, there will not be an endless succession to this restraint. In other words, this earth is not perpetual in the sense that it only, uh, only manifests God's limited judgment upon an unbelieving earth. Providential judgments, wars, rumors of wars, pestilence, famines, and so on. But there is a seventh trumpet, and that seventh trumpet will sound, and at that point, there is no opportunity for repentance. There's no opportunity for salvation. Now think about this a minute. We've seen a pattern developing in these temporal judgments of God. In the first series of judgments, what did we see? We saw that one quarter of the earth was affected, remember? In the second series of judgments, one third of the earth was affected. But do we see, beloved, in either case, a group of unbelieving people crying out to God in repentance and sorrow over their sin before him? Do we see that? No. We do not. And I think we gain some insight from the Lord Jesus Christ in his public ministry as to why. Jesus rides into Jerusalem, the triumphal entry. He's on a donkey's colt. The masses are surrounding him at one moment. They're lying down their garments for him to walk upon, for this donkey's colt to walk upon. They're raising reeds. Hail, King of the Jews, right? And then Jesus says, Father, glorify your name. And then they heard a voice, thinking it had thundered, right? In John chapter 12, verse 28, then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. Well, the crowd stood there, they heard it, and they said, ah, uh, I think it's thundered, or uh, it must be an angel. Now, the interpretation of the Lord Jesus Christ provides us much deeper insight than that. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Listen to this. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show what kind of death 
he was going to die. So from the words of Jesus, we see that his death is not only God's plan of redemption for the people of God who will look to him, who will bear the wrath of God on the cross, beloved. But at the same time, this also serves as the first sign of judgment upon an unrepentant earth. That when he would die and he would raise and he would ascend, the providential temporal judgments of Jesus would be released upon the earth. From his first coming till his second coming. So here we're in the third series of judgments, you see? In this third series of judgments being depicted, seven thunders, you, we might think to see that now half of the created realm is affected. A quarter to a third and now to a half. That's not the case. So when this voice from heaven cries out, it says, seal up. Don't write it down. God is saying there is not going to be another ongoing series of temporal periodic judgments. I will not have you, my church, enduring this forever, this cycle of unending providential judgments for you to observe. No, beloved, my seventh trumpet will sound and the end will come and you as my people will be ultimately vindicated. In other words, you will be glorified. In other words, there will be a new heaven and a new earth. This isn't going to go on like this forever. Amen is right. I know you all wanted to say that. Speaking of this very thing, the Apostle Paul writes the church of the Thessalonians. Why? Because they thought they missed the coming of Christ. They wondered, what about those that have died before us? What about them? So he writes them, and he says this, 1 Thessalonians 4.16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command. With the voice of an archangel and the sound of the what? Trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. You want to know about those who've preceded you? You want to know about my cousin? I know you do. Who was just buried three days ago? He's with the Lord. He's in Christ. That's why my aunt and uncle have so much faith. Because they're in Christ. That's why my aunt and uncle could say to my mom and dad, we praise God that the two out of the four of our family that are going to die are the two that are in Christ. The dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air so we will always be with the Lord. So what do we have here? Same picture, an angel descending from heaven. The trumpet will sound. Those that have been saved from throughout time. Let's say Christ comes back in two minutes. All those who are buried in the grave, all those whose ashes have been dumped in the ocean, wherever, those whose bodies have been blown apart in war and were in Christ, believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, will be raised to met, be met with their spirit who's with the Lord now. And we who are alive will be caught up with them. 1 Corinthians 15, same writer, the Apostle Paul. Behold, I tell you a what? Mystery. We shall not all sleep. In other words, we're not all going to die in this body, but we will shall be changed in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the what trumpet? Last. Last is last. Hold that in your mind. The trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. You see, this body has to be changed to ascend above this atmosphere let alone into the presence of God. Now, these passages, beloved, declare a last trumpet judgment. Now, we covered these scriptures as well as other scriptures and the night of eschatology, the Q&A session that we had. And we dispelled any dispensational secret rapture theory. This is not a trumpet sound that initiates another cycle of trumpet judgments. This is not a trumpet that is a secret rapture trumpet that sets off a sequence of a seven-year tribulational kind of judgment. The last trumpet is the seventh trumpet. The seventh trumpet is the last trumpet. So there's not a secret last trumpet that comes and secretly raptures the church and then he comes with another last trumpet. Last is last. Is that clear? Last is last. 
That trumpet will provide ultimate salvation for the people of God, redeemed, blood-bought saints, and will bring forth final judgment upon what the Bible refers to as wicked. The wicked. Wicked unbelief. Now, that is the gist of what this mighty angel is swearing. That's the general idea of the oath that he takes as he raises his hand. Again, this is symbolic imagery, has deep meaning. Angels don't have hands. Angels are spirits. He takes his right hand, he raises it towards heaven. And verses 6 and 7 say, when it sounds, that's it. So you see, beloved, the first century church, under heavy persecution, would be encouraged that regardless of what they saw, regardless of what they would experience by way of suffering and persecution, let alone all of the calamity which surrounds them, they could be sure that they will not be affected by friendly fire, beloved. Friendly fire that will usher them into the ultimate judgments of God. No, they are protected. You're protected. So there we have this vision of power. Here we have this voice of promise. Notice now our, our third point to be observed, and that is the vocation of prophecy. Verses eight to the end. Then the voice that I heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who's standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. He said to me, take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took a little, a little scroll from the hand of the angel and I ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Note first that the scroll and little scroll, again, are used interchangeably. He uses the, the term scroll and little scroll. It's the same scroll. Notice also what John says to this mighty angel. He says, give it to me. Now, as you read scripture, beloved, it's very uncommon for any human being to, to, to command an angel to do anything. Amen? Typically, any human interaction with an angel sends them on their face in terrified fear. <laughs> this is not the norm. But you see, it's the voice from heaven that commands him to go to the angel and take the scroll. And that voice from heaven can be none other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. So he takes it, and now he's commanded to eat it in verse 9. This, no doubt, harkens back to Ezekiel. His commission is a prophet. And we mustn't forget, beloved, as you study the Revelation, Revelation borrows at great length imagery from the Old Testament. Okay? Look, for instance, at Ezekiel 2 beginning in verse 8. Here's the Lord speaking to Ezekiel. But you, son of man, hear what I say to you. Be not rebellious like that rebellious house. Open your mouth and eat what I give you. And when I looked, behold, a hand was stretched out to me, and behold, a scroll of a book was in it. And he spread it before me. It had writing on the front and on the back, and there were written on it words of lamentation and mourning and woe. And he said to me, son of man, eat whatever you find here. Eat this scroll. Go speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth. He gave me the scroll to eat. He said to me, son of man, feed your belly with this scroll that I give you. Fill your stomach with it. Then I ate it, and it was in my mouth as sweet as honey. This is a message of woe and lament. But it's sweet to his mouth. Why is it sweet? Because it's the word of God. That's why it's sweet. Whatever it says, it's sweet because it is, the, it is the eternal, glorious word of the Most High. While at the same time, it is bitter because it is a, a message of woe. It is a message of lament. And that's what John's receiving here, as we'll see in a moment. You see, the messenger of God, beloved, does not stand separated or removed from the message. He better not. He ingests it. He consumes God's word first, and then he declares it without what? Without apology, that's right. That's his job. A preacher who doesn't feels the, feel the things he preaches, he's no preacher, man. 
He's no preacher. He's no prophet. There must be a shared passion, a a shared seriousness, a deep gravitas within. God's message must become his message. He must ingest that message. He must internalize the truths of God before he proclaims it to others. That's what John's called to do. That's what Ezekiel was called to do. Isaiah was called to go preach to a people who, as you preach, they'll become more deaf. As you proclaim, they'll become more blind. How long? Until they're all blind and they can't hear. That's how long. Whoa. (laughs) Whoa. So here John now has in his hand the same scroll. That scroll that was opened by the lamb who was slain, the Lord Jesus Christ, John has internalized these deep prophetic truths. They're sweet as honey to his lips, but when he knows what it entails, it becomes bitter within his stomach. That's the bittersweet truth of the gospel, beloved. The Bible's bittersweet. His gospel's bittersweet. And our attention this morning is drawn to that fact. The revelation of Jesus Christ, the unveiled message of the gospel, is indeed a bitter message. Always has been, always will be. In chapter 5, we see Jesus, the Lamb of God, ransomed a people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation. Remember that? His covenant of grace reaches to the ends of the earth, redeeming a one people of God. That's a very sweet message. Your salvation, is it sweet? Does it taste to you sweet in your mouth? Yes, because you know the price that was paid. It was a bitter price, but it's sweet to you, you see. Some in this world have been redeemed from slavery, from the bondage of sin, from the world, from the flesh, from the devil, from final ultimate judgment. But anyone outside of his saving realm, which makes up the bride of Christ, they become the objects of God's wrath. That's very bitter. That's the bitter side of the message. But John, nevertheless, is told to prophesy concerning those that are the object of of God's wrath. Now, even for the church, beloved, the gospel's bittersweet for you. It's bittersweet for me. It's bittersweet because as we proclaim this precious, glorious truth, it is met with opposition, is it not? You see, at the same, we're vulnerable people, saved people, But we are vulnerable in that we are susceptible to the attack of the beast. Who's the beast? The world system. Okay? Because when you proclaim this truth, you're part of the chain of transmission, you see. You are a messenger of the truth that has saved you, that sweet truth that has saved you. But as you proclaim it to the lost, you have to get to the bitter part of the message. You're already under the wrath of God. The sweetness of it is that he died in place of those who will believe. Well, that message is rarely met by a people who are more than ready to embrace dear Jesus, amen? But we can't proclaim that gospel message without the certainty of God's judgment. Therefore, you are a bitter recipient, a recipient of the bitterness of the world, you see, with a sweet message. It's bittersweet. So John is told here, notice, verse 11, you must again prophesy about Now, it's more accurate to render that preposition as follows. You must again prophesy against many people and nations and languages and kings. In other words, John's commission, his vocation of prophecy, is to proclaim a message that will ring the bell of impending judgment. That's what the angel's showing him. I should say that's what Jesus is showing him through the angel. This mighty angel. This judgment in the end will also be the means for which God will vindicate his people. And that's what we will see next week in chapter 12. Glorification. But for now, his people suffer persecution. We'll see this in more detail also in chapter 12. It says this. That woman, there's a woman who gives birth. 
This also shows you that Revelation is not chronological because when we get to chapter 12, we read about the birth of Jesus. Amen? It's another picture. And what it says there is that the woman who gives birth to the male child, who also rules the nations, was caught up to the throne of God, where then in response, the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her what? Offspring. That's you. That's me. That's anyone and everyone who's ever been in Christ since then, her offspring. It's a, it's a depiction of the target of attack on God's people. That's a description of our lives in this age. In chapter 11, verse 8, next week, we'll see the kind of persecution that God's people endure. And their dead bodies will be in the street of the great city, symbolically, which is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. So the gospel indeed, beloved, is very sweet. Because from throughout the world, he has redeemed a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Men, women, and children that are always kept, that are always guarded. They will not be the recipients of friendly fire and ushered into the ultimate judgment of God. They are guarded by him. They are in his hand and no one can snatch you out of his hand. For how long? Forever. But that message is also bitter. It's bitter for many peoples and nations kings, from the homeless to the mightiest king that sits on the mightiest throne in this world and all who are in between, those who reject the king of kings and the Lord of lords will be the object of his righteous indignation. That's the bitter side of it. So as we, beloved, dwell in the already and the not yet, we dwell as Christians in the already established kingdom of Jesus Christ because he said All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth and earth below. Go therefore and make disciples. And lo, I'm with you to the end of the age. But the not yet is the last trumpet sound. New Jerusalem. Come down from heaven. New heaven. New earth. Glorified bodies. That trumpet will sound. That's the promise. Then it will be nothing but sweet. But for now, our hope is deferred, is it not? Our hope is deferred, beloved. So we experience the bittersweet reality of the forever glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. Friendly fire is not a possibility. You're saved and you're secure. See, the gospel of Jesus Christ is the answer to God's eternal judgment that is deserved and is imminent. See, the gospel, beloved, the gospel of Jesus Christ is not the answer for low self-esteem, okay? The gospel of Jesus Christ is not the answer for an unhappy marriage. It is not the answer for financial trouble. So don't use it as that. Don't use the gospel as, you'll never have trouble in this life. That's a lie. You may have much more trouble. Do you have trouble? I have a little trouble right now, just a little. This is baby trouble. Baby, itsy-bitsy type of trouble you complain about. Okay, we have four people in our family, all old enough to drive. We have three cars, and two of them don't work. I spent all New Year's Day working on it, thinking that the problem would be fixed. Still don't work. That's a baby problem. What, because I'm a pastor? And I'm in Christ, sealed and covered by the blood of the Lamb, that we're going to have trouble in life? That's baby trouble. That's not even worth talking about. But you have trouble, Right? And you'll have trouble. And you'll have, continue to have trouble in this already established but not yet fully consummated kingdom of Jesus Christ. What you'll never receive is his judgment. You'll never be the recipient of his judgment because you, beloved, are a participant. You are a partaker in another final kind of ultimate judgment as I close. You are a participant, a recipient of the ultimate judgment of God, the ultimate judgment of God that was unleashed in a seventh trumpet kind of judgment upon one person, and it was the glorified, glorious Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. You are a partaker of that judgment, where all of the wrath of the Father was poured out upon his Son in your stead, in your place. That's the good news. 
He became sin in your place. He died a sinner's death, having never sinned. He ransomed a people for God on the cross. And you're part of that people. You were crucified where? In Christ. You should rejoice over that. We should rejoice over this, the bittersweet, glorious gospel of our Jesus Christ. Sealing and protecting you from that seventh trumpet final judgment. You'll never see it. Not from that side of it. You'll be on this side of it with him. You get it? You will judge angels, fallen angels, with him because of the wrath he took on your behalf. So may we, beloved, this morning, prepare ourselves in remembering that glorious truth as we come to the table together. This is a serious time. We remember what he did. Because seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, they will cease. This earth will cease as we know it. And it will be transformed at the last trumpet blast. And you're covered. Do you get it? Let us remember as we come to the Lord's table. Men, please stand. Our glorious Father, we thank you for your redeeming promises. We thank you for the Redeemer, the fulfillment of all those promises, your only begotten Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you that that promised seventh trumpet will blast. But we are sealed from such judgment. Help us, Lord, as participants of that message to declare it with grace, to declare it with love, but to declare it unveiled with clarity, not in our own might and our strength, but in the power of the Spirit that we may see people come to saving faith who come out from underneath the judgment of you, our almighty God, under the Lamb of God who bore the judgment in their place. We thank you and we praise you. Help us remember now the price that was paid on our behalf. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can keep your heads bowed if you like in meditation of these words. But we come to the table remembering For it was Jesus himself who said, do this in remembrance of me. And at the table, beloved, we are in fact assembled to attend our Savior's funeral. It's a viewing, if you will, of his broken body and his shed blood. The price that was paid for you. That he stepped in and he took upon himself the wrath of the Father. So at the table, each of us remembers when he found us, beloved, poor and miserable and wretched and blind and naked. We were dead in trespasses and sins. We had no hope and we were without God in the world. Scripture clearly defines that. But we must remember how he pitied us. He's awakened us. He's convinced us of our sin. He drew us near to himself by the cords of his love revealing his redemptive purpose, revealing what he has accomplished on our behalf. And we must also remember, beloved, that since then, how often he's healed us of our backsliding. He's pardoned our sins. He's pardoned our unbelief. He pardons our ingratitude. He pardons our complaining. We must remember, he pardons our laziness. He revives our discouraged spirits. He alleviates our sorrows. He upholds us when we're weak. So we come to remember the substitutionary sacrifice on our behalf that he has since led us through the wilderness of sins and sorrow. We remember in the midst of trials, in the midst of temptations, we remember the price that was paid. We remember that the final ultimate act of judgment was laid upon him. The Apostle Paul said, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, 
that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So here now, beloved, the body of Christ, the bread of heaven, the bread of life, given for you. Let's partake. In the same way, also, he took the cup. After supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. So here then, beloved, is the blood of Christ, the cup of salvation shed for you. And let us partake.